trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you find yourself questioning some of the things that are being told to us, whether it's by officials in public office or whether it's by people within media, if you find yourself scratching your head going, that just doesn't add up, are they really telling me the truth? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you by simply asking that question. You, my friend, are engaging in wrong think. I'm encouraging you to take it one step further and not just engage in wrong think, but actually revel in it. Think as clearly and independently as you possibly can. Yes, there is risk. You may be maligned a bit. You might be name-called and perhaps, uh, you know, ostracized among some people. That's okay. It's really important to maintain your grip on reality. It's not something that's getting easier by the day, as somehow I believed it would. As a kid, I thought life was supposed to get easier the older you get. But nope, even the more you know. It's like the more complicated things get. I'm here to help bring a little bit of sense to the big picture of what's happening. But ultimately, it's your responsibility to make sure that uh, you either agree or disagree with something after you have thought it through and made up your own mind. Fair enough? All right. Got some sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. It would mean a lot to me if you would do business with them. They include garagedoorproservices.com, lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, as well as hslammo.com. Now, I've got some fairly heavy stuff to share with you today. Um, some of this is is just terrific. Uh, there's a, a Max Borders open letter to a young Marxist. We'll get to that a little bit later on, but wow. Wow, does that to offer some insights into what the people who are really pushing or trying to embrace Marxism these days, where are they coming from? Max Border does a really good job of you know, reaching out to them and, and trying to engage them and also trying to, to jar them out of the, what would you call it, the spell, the trance that, that seems to, to pull some people in to thinking, no, Marxism, man, it's the only fair way to go. Anyway, that's coming up. I want to share with you a couple of thoughts about what's gone right, because I know there's a lot of stuff every day that just shakes our faith in humanity. At least that's that's how it is for me. If I spend too much time watching news, I know I've hit the saturation point about the time I feel my faith in humanity start to slip away. So borrowing from Paul Rosenberg in an article he wrote some years ago, he says, you know, if you only feed on negativity, which is largely what we get through most of our mainstream sources, they're telling us the very worst things about humanity. And I suppose this is in, in an effort to tell us that, well, you know, see, you guys are terrible, you're bad, you, you're weak, you're inadequate. That's why you need this system of ruling rules and people, you know, to tell you what you should do. Now, see, others, you know, myself included, I believe, no, people are basically good and don't need to be controlled. But when you say that, that means, well, you're trying to say my ruling system isn't necessary. Yeah, they get angry. And the people who are emotionally attached to that system tend to get angry too. So if you're only feeding on the negativity, you're going to get negative attitudes. So would you remember things like this? These are just a few of the triumphs of humanity that Paul Rosenberg pointed out. He says, we've eradicated diseases like smallpox. 
diseases that tortured humanity for centuries. He points out that we've learned to feed billions of people and feed them well. We can grow far more food than we need. Now, this is ironic, isn't it? Coming up on a on a time where we're hearing very uh, consistent warnings of food shortages, famines, and so forth. Interesting. He talks about how we've created machines that move us across the ground tremendous distances safely and reliably. We've created machines that fly us around the world and at incredible speeds. We've harnessed the information stores of humanity and made them available to anyone almost for free and almost anywhere. The public cruelty of the ancient era has been almost entirely eliminated. Yeah, the whole tar and feathers and putting people in the pillory and throwing rotten fruit at them. Sometimes I kind of wish that could come back. But, you know, maybe that's that's just my own dark side starting to emerge there. Oh, and slavery has been almost entirely eliminated. Now, this isn't, you know, whistling past the graveyard and it's not just, you know, trying to look on the bright side of things. It's it's acknowledging that these are things that humanity actually has done. And that's not to discount the idea that, yeah, there are some human beings out there who are actually not good people. But generally, most of us behave quite well most of the time. We genuinely work to get along. And frankly, we, as, as, you know, as a body, humanity, has done some pretty amazing stuff. Don't forget that. Now, I'm ready to dive in and talk about some of the things that need fixed. You know, this whole disenfranchisement of the unvaxxed a year ago, I hope you remember what that was like when you literally had people saying, we need to make the make things so difficult for the unvaxxed, we need to make it so hard that they can't earn a living, they can't go anywhere, they're not admitted anywhere. They need to feel this pressure until they realize how wrong it is to defy these mandates. Now, if you feel like, well, that's being a little dramatic there, Brian, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to wallow in victimhood or anything here, but I'll tell you, I'm still righteously ticked off that people ever would turn on their neighbors like that. That just, to me, that was, that brought out some of the absolute worst that I've seen, not just in, in the systems that want to rule us, but in people. And unfortunately, that uh, memory has faded for a lot of folks I know right now I want to feel like, well, at least, you know, things are so much better and maybe maybe this is a time we can relax because the worst is past us. Todd Hyen, writing for OffGuardian.org, warns, uh, be careful. He says, we are in the eye of the storm right now and this is not a time to get comfortable or to become complacent because the same people who were urging the marginalization and essentially the cancellation of the non-compliant a year ago They're still around. They still have those attitudes. Few, if any, have offered any kind of a mea culpa. By the way, there have been a few people who've said, you know what? I'm really sorry. I I was wrong. How I treated people because of their vaccination status was just flat wrong. And I, I accept their apology. I don't need to rub their noses in it, but... The unrepentant ones, the ones who think, well, we'll just have to do it harder and a little more insistent next time we do it. I don't think they quite realize there will not be a next time. Or at least next time is not going to look like they think it's going to look like. Because there are quite a number of people who have found their backbones and realized, I'm not going to be forced like that. Anyway, let's go back here for a moment. This is Todd Hyen's article in the Eye of the Storm. He says, sometime earlier this year, 2022, the fear porn seemed to start to wane. 
Mandates started to relax. Masks started to disappear. Social distancing decals came up off the floors in supermarkets and drugstores. He says occasionally you might have even seen a waiter or a waitress maskless in the more liberated restaurants. The storm was lifting, or was it? Now, he says, anyone who's followed my writing knows that at the time, I was not joining the celebration parties many other people were throwing in their exuberance that we'd won the Great War. So many believed the efforts to kill the giant hydra of the mainstream agenda had been successful. All the hydra's heads, or nearly all of them, had been hacked off. But he says, I never believed this. As many of you out there never bought into it fully either. It's a common tactic in a psy operation, and he says, I've written about it quite often, but he says, maybe I was not entirely correct. He says, I read an article recently from Off Guardian, Ukraine in the time of COVID, that basically pointed out that the elite, the agenda, may have moved too quickly, and in their excitement, they may have shown a bit too much of their hand. Now, this could be true. But he says, I wonder about all the, mis- the movies I've seen where the evil villains never think they've made a mistake. They laugh and jeer when the good guys tell them their evil plans are doomed. They never stop and shake the smirk off their faces and say, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have gone slower. Now, of course, reality is different than a movie most times. And maybe the agenda really did move too fast and the real life villains got a little too cocky and relaxed a bit too much in their arrogance. Maybe they're backing off a bit. He says, maybe, but then again, maybe not. He says, I still don't fully buy it. And if it is true, I don't think any sort of minor slip up like that, like moving too fast, is going to change that much. Maybe it'll change some of the tactics they originally had in mind to, to implement anyway. But the juggernaut, he says, is still on the move, crashing down any sort of barrier or stall in time it encounters. It's a massive machine. And it may spit and snort a bit as it comes up against formidable obstacles, but it isn't going to stop in its tracks for very long if it stops at all. So he's saying the surface may seem calm. The agenda has almost total control of the surface, meaning control over what people are thinking, doing, and believing. He says this surface of the global population has been remarkably easy to control, much easier than I ever could have imagined. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments. Again, I'm sharing an article here from Todd Hyen. This is from offguardian.org. By the way, as far as resources go for keeping a good eye on things, pretty tough to beat offguardian.org. You might want to check that one out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to single out Garage Door Pros for a bit of recognition. First of all, as being a wonderful sponsor of this program. And secondly, for being there for the folks in St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, and Colorado City, Arizona. Down there in that southwest corner of uh, Utah, this is where you'll find Garage Door Pros, a local company. They install, they service, they repair garage doors, American-made garage doors, I might add. And they can give you a great lead time, terrific service, whether it's commercial or residential. They will take care of you. Pick up the phone and call 435-525-2773, or you can go to their website at garagedoorproservices.com. 
and please let them know you heard about it here on this program. So I'm sharing this article from Todd Hyen. This is from offguardian.org about us being in the eye of the storm. And I don't really know that, uh, I, I'm not trying to get you scared and paranoid that, oh boy, you know, the worst is yet to come. But I think we can agree that we haven't, uh, we haven't yet feasted on the full banquet of consequences from bad decisions that have been made. So, you know, be alert, be aware. But as far as, well, at least the pandemic's over and none of that stuff is going to be forced on us again. He says, be careful. Because he says, it's, it's much easier to control the public than any of us realized. And in fact, he says, it's one example of the utter brilliance of the evil narrative. They can essentially get away with anything. And few will even raise an ounce of concern. Now, they have to do this in a special way, but it isn't all that complicated. Their methods of coercion and manipulation are highly effective. And if there has indeed been a slowdown, it's probably intentional. So the surface is calm. The surface thinks the crisis is over, at least very close to over. People are kept on their toes, which is the intention, with little nudges here and there. Ukraine and Russia, monkeypox, HIV, climate change. Bottom line is we're always kept ready for disaster to hit. But for the most part, we can go about our daily lives, staring at our cell phones, going out and partying, working to buy a car, a house, or whatever instant gratification we can get our hands on. Now he says, I'm not pointing fingers, by the way, I'm guilty of this as well. We can even go on a vacation without too many restrictions, just canceled flights and mayhem at the airports. And the surface water is still, but it runs deep. What strange creatures do we find lurking in the depths? Well, here we'll find a robust effort to inoculate everyone left standing with the COVID vaccines for no reason at all at this point. Now, there never was, but they kept telling us there was. Now they can get us to vaccinate without having to bother shoving a fake reason down our throats. Right now in the States, it stands at six months being the youngest authorized to vaccinate. But he says, I doubt if it stops there. We still have newborns to add to the list, and of course, the effort to protect Big Pharma from liability is the aim of the, these early age approvals for vaccination. And if you go any deeper into that still water, you may find a genocidal agenda lurking in the shadows. This may be as far as you need to go to get a clear view of the storm about to hit us. He says the seeds of genocide, if indeed those were the seeds planted, are well on their way to sprouting big time. The agenda is set. And he says they don't really need to do anything else quickly. Digital IDs, vaccine passports, digital currency, another viral attack, more vaccines. All those can be saved for when the population is reduced. All they have to do now is just sit back and watch. Lots of sinister looking fish down there, most of them familiar enough, but still not as visible as before. But many places in the U.S. still require vaccine proof. For example, many individual theaters in New York City still require proof of vaccination. Now, these restrictions come and go, so he says, let me know if they've been sufficiently lifted. How about cruise liners? Some have lifted vaccine requirements, but only for selected cruises and destinations. Lots of interior venues still require proof of the jab. Lots of jobs still require vaccines to stay employed. Arrive Can in Canada is still in place for literally no scientific reason. Now, that may have, that may have changed recently with the CDC's surprise lifting of their policies and what they previously required. But he says, last I heard through Canadian citizens or who are not complying is that they're being pulled from their cars and interrogated for hours before being fined. 
And he says, I've read article after article about under the radar, not covered in the mainstream media, happenings in the world like mask mandates coming back to countries like Germany and Australia. Monkeypox vaccines coming to the forefront, digital IDs breaking through legislation, talk of new variants, new viruses, etc. Yeah, the surface is calm, but that's about it. You may have to dig a little to find some of this, but it isn't too far down there. He goes, think of it like a, like a gardening project. First comes the preparation of the garden space. Plowing, digging, tilling, turning, a huge operation. Back when I was a kid and had a garden in the country, preparing raw land for a large plot was a massively disruptive ordeal. First, the land was plowed with the tractor to tear into the raw ground and turn it, and then another round of the tractor pulling large cylinder discs to break up the rough plowed ground. Then you went out there with just your muscles, a pickaxe, a hoe, and a shovel, and broke up everything even more, turning under the fertilizer, the manure, and other soil amendments. So he says he quite that process with the pandemic. What a massive disturbance that was. Churning, turning, digging the global populace into near hysteria. Among other things, its purpose was to build confidence in the save-the-day figures like Fauci and Biden and Walensky and Tedros and Trudeau and all the other wartime Winston Churchill types spouting sound bites to build trust and resolve to beat this common enemy of the people through personal sacrifice and fortitude. Do what we say and we'll all be fine. Well, he says this preparation of the soil also built an illusory veneration for the agenda called science, or what the agenda called science, I should say, a complete and utterly false new definition for what became the narrative's new religion. It also created fear, fear of the unknown and an abnormal fear of nature itself, turning living a normal, natural life embraced in nature's nurturing arms into life and nature itself being the enemy and source of abject fear. So now the soil is prepared, the dust from the plowing and disruption has settled, the seeds are planted, and we sit and wait with anticipation. What will sprout from these carefully planted seeds, sowed into this carefully prepared soil? What have the masses been prepared for? What will that preparation yield? A more compliant mass? A more reliant mass? A more fearful mass? A less confident mass? A mass prepared to give up the essence of life as a human, due to a prepared fear of nature and fear of life itself? He says, this is, fer- this is certainly fertile ground for the monster the agenda has prepared for us. A monster that is very likely intended to consume us or maybe even wipe out a large par- portion of the world's population. Likely intended at the very least to control us and thus create a world to the agenda's liking. Now, maybe if we were part of this elite group, we would cheer it on to success. But we are not. We are useless eaters. So, we are in the eye of the storm. This time, the farmer sits back on his back porch and looks out over his fields and waits to see what will come of his efforts. Maybe this is a time to relax, enjoy the sun, enjoy family, enjoy life. Maybe not. Maybe it's time to prepare ourselves for what comes up in that field. He says, I remember a little children's story when I was a kid about a chicken asking all the other creatures on the farm to help her prepare the seed she had collected to make bread. Everyone refused. They all had better things to do. Nothing seemed too pressing to put aside their leisure moments to help the mother hen. Now you can guess what happened. The hen did all the work herself. When she ended up with bread to eat in the winter, everyone scrambled to her little hut and begged for bread. And as I recall, she said, too bad. You didn't help when I needed it. So to hell with you. Or something like that. So, somehow as an adult, 
Todd Hyens says, I doubt it actually ended that way. But he says, that's what I remember. Not sure why the chicken story came up. He says, maybe the chicken was really one of us and was preparing for the new normal and all the other animals ignoring her were the new normies. Whatever. He says, what I am saying is there may be dark days ahead. Better to be the prepared chicken than to be sorry. I know that took a different turn than I thought, but (laughs) I want to be a prepared chicken. How about you? I think he's got some good advice here. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what is going to be reaped from what's been sown. But I think we should be prepared. He's right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. Go to the website. You can actually click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I promise you, you will find food storage options. You will find emergency preparedness supplies. Lots of goodies that uh, can make you feel more prepared, a little more confident that, uh, well... We can handle, you know, getting clean water. We can handle cooking if the power grid was down, whatever the case may be. It's always a good idea to have a little something just in case. All right, back to the show notes here. You know, even as the CDC has been walking back its disastrous COVID policies, there are very few people calling for accountability for the disastrous COVID response. Jeffrey Tucker has a marvelous article in, the, in brownstone.org, in their, uh, their website, How to Tame a Bureaucracy. The answer is you get rid of it. He says any serious effort to end the crisis must deal with the problem of the administrative state and the bureaucratic power thereof. Without that focus, no reform effort can get anywhere. Now that surely is a main takeaway from the, the uh, trauma of our times. The solution has to be drastic, and it has to work. Jeffrey Tucker says the reason is simple. A free and functioning society cannot coexist with an undemocratic beast like this on the loose, making its own laws and running roughshod over rights and liberties with zero oversight from elected leaders. Until the administrative state is defanged and disempowered, there will be no representative government and no hope for change. That's stark, but I think he's right on. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, it's obvious that the bureaucracies will not reform themselves. In promising an overhaul of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for example, Rochelle Walensky emphasized better communication and less confusing messaging to the public. So this is the appearance of an apology. I'm sorry you're upset. The reform will be the same. Cosmetic without reality. It will not deal with the central problem, as plainly stated by Harvey Risch, industry subservience and epidemiological incompetence. So the agency wants another chance. Well, maybe it doesn't deserve one. Jeffrey Tucker says, still, let us reflect on how reform happens in the real world outside of government. When a private company loses customers, its revenue declines, its stock price falls, and what happens if it wants to avoid bankruptcy? Well, it usually taps new management, including in its C-suite. Then begins the hard look. Where are the excess costs? 
Where are the unprofitable sectors? Where are the missed opportunities? In every case, there is a new test of the new action, or there is a test of the new actions. Do they increase valuations? Now, Jeffrey Tucker says every private company of a certain size has a wasteful bureaucracy, and taming it is always a challenge, even for the best managers and owners. But in this case, there's both the incentive and the standard by which to judge the results. Thanks to double-entry bookkeeping invented in the 14th century, although there are scraps of evidence of it in the ancient world too, we have a rational means to discover where to cut and where to expand. Now, it's not infallible, but it does provide a guide and an efficacy test. So in the case of government bureaucracy, accounting operates very differently. Congress approves the money, and it is spent. That's the end. There are no consumers voluntarily electing to purchase their services. Their revenue is extracted via various forms of force. Now, the Government Accounting Office can make sure that the money incoming and outgoing are properly recorded and that overruns are minimized. Its loan accounts need to be in order and paid up if possible. This division and that division gets an allocation and need to stick with it. But what's missing here is any sort of metric that points to a larger concern, and that is assessing whether any of this is actually worth it. And he says, this is what we cannot know. This is because of the institutional structure. Ultimately, we rely on intuition and opinion. We think transportation is a social good, so let's have a Department of Transportation. We think health is important, so let's have a Department of Health and Human Services, and so on. And if the results don't quite meet expectations, well... Congress can revisit. That's about it. This lack of economic rationality of government bureaucracy becomes a massive problem, especially when it promises a reorganization as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is currently doing. How precisely is it supposed to go about reallocating its resources in a way that achieves achieves great public health benefits if there's no real metric that aligns such benefits to the current expenditures and operations? a good question. Lacking any such economic or accounting tools, which private enterprise takes for granted, such bureaucracies end up making things up as they go along. Or more likely, they respond to the private interests, which have the greatest stake in the outcomes of the agency. This is how it happens that pharmaceutical companies have exercised such enormous influence over the FDA, the CDC, and NIH. When the pandemic hit, One might suppose that a National Institutes of Health would, for example, immediately throw resources into discovering which existing medications could be effective and repurpose them. It was not a priority. Instead, that was left to private actors who were motivated by such concerns as the Hippocratic Oath. Now, when bureaucrats speak of their stakeholders, they mean their employees and the industry they manage, not the citizens, which speaks to another problem. When a government agency purports to handle the whole problem, relying on its chosen experts and monopolizing the conversation, it squeezes out other options. No doubt that long-term care facilities and hospitals would have handled the COVID problem better without government edicts telling them precisely what to do. Same with individuals. Those with higher risk tolerance would have gone about their business while those in the vulnerable category would have exercised more caution. Jeffrey Tucker says, in any case, let's say that politicians decide that the CDC is out of control and needs an old-fashioned budget cut of, say, 10%. It hardly ever happens, but let's say it did. And the managers of the CDC want to implement such a thing in a way that maximizes efficiency and still serves the public. 
So where to cut? How to know? There are no sectors profiting and no sectors losing money. It's all just funds coming and going. There truly is no economically rational way to go about this. What we know for sure is that such a cut would provoke internal panic and a scramble for influence over the process. After all, the bureaucracy has a life of its own and wants to survive. It'll do anything possible to stop cuts from happening. The first place to cut, they always decide, is that which teaches the politicians and the public a brutal lesson. Never trim our budget. And they do this by eliminating the things that people care most about. So in Washington parlance, you're going to recognize this. This is the Washington Monument ploy. Whenever there's a budgetary freeze or restraint, the first things that close down are the main visitor centers in the city, as if to send a signal to all the people who come for pilgrimages. It usually works because people call their elected representatives in anger and demand for the monuments to be opened again. Well, Jeffrey Tucker says Washington specializes in these high-dudgeon performances of austerity theater, and they do it every few years, so it will be if anyone dares impose a cut of the CDC's budget. Now, guaranteed, the politicians, or the Democrats, rather, will, sorry, the bureaucrats, will feed the mail, the media, rather, tales of woe of sick children and suffering elderly people and teens drinking bleach or eating dishwashing pods or some other absurdity and say, this is what happens when you devalue public health. But here's the core problem. Without ripping the Band-Aid off slowly, there is no painless way to do this. And there's truly no rational way to go about cutting the budgets of government bureaucracy without provoking a backlash that makes the cutters look like the monsters. After Betsy DeVos left the Department of Education and observing from the inside what a disaster it truly was, she said what needed to be said. Abolish it. Shut it down. Defund it completely. Forget about it. It does nothing useful. Everything it does can be performed better at the state level or private markets. All true. Now, what she says about the Department of Education is equally true about another 100-plus agencies of the administrative state. People have been talking about uh, abolishing the FBI. Great! Jeffrey Tucker says, do it. Same goes for the CDC. It's time. Right now, pull the plug on the whole thing. Sell the real estate. Truly, there is no other option except continuing to do what we're doing now. But he says the status quo is intolerable. He says there needs to be a to-be-abolished list. And any government, any federal government institution with the word agency, department, or bureau needs to be on that list. Jeffrey Tucker says the last few years have shown us the power of these institutions and the devastation they can cause. The only sure way of preventing it from happening again is to put a hard stop on all the bureaucracies that cause our suffering. Society itself, which is smarter than bureaucracy, can handle the rest. I know, it's it's a lofty goal. I agree wholeheartedly with what he's suggesting here. But can you imagine? Oh, can you imagine the kind of melodrama that would result? The media coverage would be epic and very slanted. Be a lot of bureaucrats, a lot of people uh, talking about what a what a devastating it would, thing it would be to the economy. And yet I tend to think of it as maybe giving those uh, former government employees a chance to find fulfillment among the productive sector of society. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. Yep, that's their website. It's really that simple. Jump on there, take a look around, do a little bit of shopping, and if you're so inclined, maybe buy yourself some uh, high-quality, remanufactured, or new ammunition. They make both. They do a wonderful job, and they're very competitive in their prices. And did I mention Ammo's a really, really solid store of value? If you're saving stuff up for barter, or if you're just looking to uh, stockpile a commodity that will always be useful to somebody, that's something to think about. HSLAmmo.com. A couple quick notes here. Um, I'm including in today's show notes a link to an article by Brittany Hunter on how uh, there's no shortage of battles being waged all around us. And one of the greatest battles that we will fight or that we'll be a part of is the one to improve ourselves. Oh, I know. That's the one that takes place out of sight of the public, but it really is a terrific uh, battle. And, And Brittany has a terrific explanation of how that personal struggle can have impact on the other conflicts around us. In other words, when we get ourselves together, when we are actively engaged in self-improvement, we're improving the world around us. And you may think, well, it's such a little thing, but, you know, it's, it's true. You get your own life in order, it has an effect, a ripple effect, on the people in your immediate orbit. So definitely something to think about. Another story here that I wanted to uh, to just put there for your reading, you know, for an opportunity for you to check out if you're so inclined. I just want to kind of illustrate how badly the FBI has squandered the American public's trust. And I know this is kind of a time, well, everybody's picking on the FBI, but you really need to read the story about how the FBI used an affidavit to mislead a judge on a search warrant that was served in Beverly Hills in a plot to seize and forfeit contents of safety deposit boxes. Now, they went in and seized the company without specifically saying, we want to go after, you know, the contents of this box, this box, and this box. The FBI went in and seized all the safe deposit boxes. And then later said, well, we're thinking about starting some, uh, you know, uh, some forfeiture proceedings. The trouble was they had started the paperwork for those forfeiture proceedings before they ever got the search warrant. That just sounds like straight up theft. And they were taking things from people like gold coins and cash and jewelry and things like this. Millions of dollars worth of private property not connected to any crime. Why would you allow a secret police agency to do something like this? And the truth of the matter is, in a healthy society, you know the answer is, we wouldn't. We would never allow such an agency to even come into existence in the first place. And yet here we are. So when you see, uh, you know, the uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland or uh, you see uh, the FBI Director, Mr. Ray, you know, going on there crying crocodile tears, people who criticize our agents are putting them at terrible, terrible risk. If your agents are doing the things that it uh, appears that they're doing and your agency's doing the things it appears that it's engaged in, we'd be better off without you. Sorry, but that's, that's just the truth. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. In the last few minutes, I want to talk about Max Borders' open letter 
to a young Marxist. This is from AIER.org, the American Institute for Economic Research. And I really like his approach here. This is very gentle. It's not, you know, thump, 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 finger in your chest. You're going to agree with me or else. Max Borders, in writing his open letter to a young Marxist, starts with the acknowledgement that someone has provided for you for most of your life. Some parental figures saw to your needs, whether food, clothing, or amusements, and you were raised a net consumer. Now, he says, I'm guessing you were more comfortable than 99% of anyone who ever lived in human history, yet you probably didn't deserve any of it, at least not as a diligent worker deserves a paycheck. This is the way it goes in most families, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Now, he says, because this is an open letter, I can't possibly know the particulars of your lived experience, but I do know this. Someone provided for you. Did you expect all of those goodies? Most of us take our provider's generosity for granted at some point. You might protest that you had chores, but an adolescent's sense of entitlement rarely matches her contribution. Thus, you are alive and reading this because you were the beneficiary of someone else's work or their productive effort. Now, he says, so was I, mind you. Indeed, not only did your folks have to work, nearly everything you enjoyed was produced by other people collaborating in their productive efforts. Now, the legal structure for this is called a corporation. There are different corporate forms from worker cooperatives to traditional firms, and I understand you don't like all of them. As you got older, he says, hopefully you lost some of that adolescent sense of entitlement. Maybe you came to realize that you did. Indeed, grow up comfortable, and not everyone does. Maybe you feel guilty. You might even have experienced the first stirrings of indignation about the working poor. Soon, a burning rectitude, a sense of injustice, becomes familiar but undefined. Many people live hard lives outside of wealth's cottony confines and work long hours for little pay. When opportunities are few, people must take what work they can get. Such is the way it is, and it always has been, yet with improvements through time. But somewhere along the way, you discovered Karl Marx. Most start with the Communist Manifesto. But if you graduated to Das Kapital, congratulations, it's a beast. In any case, I hope you're up for a challenge. So from here, he lays out some of Marxism's fundamental problems. And this is is worth your time. If you can find the time to, to read this article and study, you will come away so much better informed and in understanding where these young Marxists are coming from or what even the old Marxists, you know, what they're trying to push, as well as why they're wrong. In this case, uh, I mean, we've, we've got uh, Max Border describing uh, neither in theory nor in practice. He says, two common cliches invite intellectual gymnastics on Marxism's behalf. It's never been tried in its truest form, and it's good in theory, but not in practice. Now, he says we can dismiss both of these claims because Marxism offers little good in either theory or in practice. So he says, consider this brief tour of Marxism coupled with critiques. And from here he walks through the labor theory of surplus value, alienation, exploitation, the abolition of private property, the abolition of market prices, historical materialism, the dictatorship of the proletariat, dialectical materialism, from each according to his ability, and Marx's uh, Marxist socialist man. I mean, this is a pretty detailed essay. 
But the bottom line reason he's writing it is he says, I'm hoping if you've got this far in reading, you will consider each point carefully. He says, young Marxist, you should try to defend Marxism from these critiques, of course. But if you're interested in intellectual honesty and human flourishing, you should try your best to make a steel man out of them first. Why? Because violent movements forged in the fires of idealism seldom turn out well for anyone. So Max Porter says, if any social experiment depends on scorching the earth before building a utopia, it's probably not the way. But if an ideal system starts small and grows, pulling more human souls into its influence, it probably has legs. Sustainable systems persist. The best systems will be a product of human choices. But that's evolutionary, not revolutionary. Bottom line, he says, is different systems can coexist if we start with a principle of voluntary association, and that includes communes. Interesting take. It's been a long time since I've read Marx. I, I, uh, I did read uh, Das Kapital. I did read uh, The Communist Manifesto. Seems like there was another one I had from him. And I, I, it's been long enough. I can tell you this. People ask, well, why would you want to pollute your mind with, uh, with Marxist thinking and so forth? But if you want to look at the ideology that has affected more people in, in the existence of humanity, Marx, I think, is probably the guy who holds the record for that. And I don't mean has influenced people, you know, necessarily for the good. How many people, how many millions, maybe billions of people have lived under real, honest-to-goodness Marxist tyranny? Yeah, it's a, it's a very seductive kind of philosophy, and it uh, has not gone away. So it's worth knowing what your enemy is, is doing or what your enemy is thinking, not because we're enemy-driven, mind you, but just because we need to be aware of what exactly it is that they're, that they're trying to stand up for or what they're trying to promote. Now, personally, I would say you also need to get yourself pretty squared away on things like, oh, I don't know, free markets, personal liberty, religious freedom, freedom of conscience, property rights, and so forth. You know, if you're into that kind of thing, you actually might want to know what you're defending. Thanks again for joining us today. Please subscribe to my show notes. Go to thebrianheidshow.com to do so. This is The Brian Hyde Show.